Hotep family, Ashe to all my people out there. Welcome back to another episode of My Unapologetic Perspective. Um, this is the podcast where we give our point of view of controversial topics from our experience, black history, and our knowledge as African Americans. Black history presently lives in us, so we can continue to excel into the future. It's one thing to know black history. It's another thing to take advantage of what the people in black history did for you. In the words of Malcolm X, um, there will come a time where black people will wake up and become intellectually independent enough to think for themselves. And we believe we are in that time. I'm your host, Martre Baker Stevens. And to the right of me is Shaquan Battle. I mean, hello. And to the right of him is Jerome Battle. What's up? Uh, we appreciate all the love and support we've been getting. Uh, we apologize that we have not recorded in a few weeks. Um, as we had a, uh, uh, a passing to the ancestors, um, Big Alvin Battle, our granddad, uh, dad's dad, um, who was a faithful listener to the podcast, who gave us a lot of information for the podcast, um, as he continued to guide us as an ancestor, continue to give us information, continue to put us in the right direction to be able to be our best selves, um, rest in power to uh, Alvin Battle. Um also appreciate all the love we've been getting on social media. We've had uh we got one video on Facebook that's hit 130,000 views. Um and now two videos on TikTok that's over 100,000, one pushing close to 200,000 um views. We appreciate all the love and support we've been getting. Uh the YouTube numbers have been steadily going up. We appreciate all that love. And we appreciate all the haters for commenting to give us more <laughs> traction to um, to boost our numbers. Uh, some of the people who comment, comment all the time, which lets us know that we're your favorite podcast and we love you. Thank appreciate you. it. Yeah. That's right. Let, let them know who shared, uh, who reposted one of the videos. Um, we, uh, we did a video a little while back. This was from an earlier episode. Uh, on the death of Kendrick Johnson, with um, that they ruled an accident, and Dad went off about that whole case, and his mother, who's still fighting for justice, who's still fighting to get their case reopened, um, to be ruled a homicide because we know from the facts that they gave us about that case, there's no way that that case is an accident, um, and she's heavy on social media on TikTok, and she shared it. Um, Jackie, uh, Johnson is her name. Um, and we, uh, our hearts and our prayers are continuously with her and our fight is still with her as she, right. uh, continues to fight for justice for, her, uh, for her son's homicide. That's right. right. That's right. Uh, today we have, uh, a, a really special episode. Y'all know everyone, y'all know with this podcast, we do black history. We do, we talk about racism. We talk about a lot of different things, uh, today's world but we also um at times like to give flowers you know what i mean uh within talk about history we like to give flowers to people who are not normally talked about on a normal basis or even thought about in that light so we try to we try to bring that perspective here and today is a special episode because we're talking about how black comics brought black America to white people's doorstep. That's right. And how they created a platform, how did they created a voice that changed the narrative here in America, um, not only in comedy, but in, in through TV, through, through real life. Um, 
And that's one of the most important things when we look at entertainment is that you have entertainment, but within that entertainment, you can have education as well. And that's one of the things that um, a lot of groundbreaking comedians did um, for black people. And they changed comedy forever because now you look at comedy today, white comedians are doing the same thing. Black comedians have always done since the late sixties, early seventies. You know what I'm saying? So you talk about the way that they changed the landscape of what comics do. Um, the storytelling, the ability to, to speak out on things, um, it's important because we know that in black culture, there's a, there's truth behind every joke. You know what I mean? You can make a joke, but there's a lot of truth to it. And comedy has always been a more than just a laughing matter for black people. You know, the black experience evolved in America through humor, through inspiration, you know, and. And in comedy, you know, they begin to talk about personal stories, politics, race relations, uh, news within comedy. And these are things that black people brought to the forefront. What's y'all opinion? Just doing the research and, and bringing this to the forefront. What are y'all thoughts when you when you were going through this research? Uh, when you have a microphone, you have a responsibility. Right. Um, us as podcasters, we have a, we have microphones. So we have a responsibility to provide information and find it, find ways to make it digestible and get the information out there. Comedian use jokes. Um, we use uh, what what you call it? Uh, the the chronological. <laughs> that's that's what we use. The chronology of history. Yeah, yeah. Um, and with comedy, you want to know what's going on in our communities. Watch black comedy. Yeah. Um, Chris Rock was uh big with that. Um, uh. Richard Pryor. Um, and I, it was funny because the documentary that you sent me, uh, one of the guys said that Richard Pryor was the Julius Irvin and uh, Eddie Murphy was the Michael Jordan mm, that's of right. comedy. Mm, that's right. right. Yeah. I, I, I agree. I, I think there's different platforms to educate people. And in education, there there's a responsibility of having the opportunity to share cultural differences when it comes to race. And I think that um, comedy, comedians were able to talk about things that black people endured that is funny in a certain spectrum, Mm -hmm. but also uh, very degrading in other sections. And by bringing it to comedy, they was able to disseminate that information to white America Mm -hmm. in a manner that, one, they could do one or two things. They could look at it and go, huh, I can relate to that because that's what we do. Or, oh, that's funny. Right? Mm -hmm. Either way. So it's your choice. But we want to get the information to you. Right. When you start looking at the comedians, the people is when you start realizing that wasn't just a joke. Yeah. There's more to what they're saying. Let me start listening more. Dick Gregory, which we'll get into, is one of the people of that that I, I think was very influential because he used comedy to get the attention of other people. And once he got their attention, he started giving them some real information. Yeah. So I think that a lot of the comedians we're going to talk about today, one, they did what came natural to them. They were funny. Yeah. They did what was natural. But at the time that they were doing it, they had a responsibility Mm -hmm. 
because they had a microphone, they had a platform, they had listeners, they had a responsibility to educate. And I think they did that through comedy. Absolutely. And we know that black comedians have set a standard. You know, you can't just be funny. You have to have a message with right. your funny. And we're seeing that with a lot of black comics today that a lot of black comedians aren't making it today because they don't stand for anything. That's right. You know what I mean? And when you look at the ones that we're talking about, they stood for something. They didn't they didn't pick a side. That's right. I mean, uh, I mean, they they picked the side. They didn't stand in the in the middle and say, "Well, here's this and here's that," like a lot of comedians do today, because they don't want to offend anybody. Those comedians pick the side. If you don't like it, I don't care. I'm gonna still say That's what right. I want to say, how I want to say it, because this is what I believe in. Uh, because when you look at the history for black comics, again, it's something that we can go back into enslaved black people. Um, they would do comedy to um, number one, it was relief from bad times. You know, one thing that slavery didn't do it didn't shackle uh harmony and music and and dance it didn't shackle creativity. our creativity it didn't shackle our hope of what we can do and what we can be one day and it didn't shackle our humor that's right. you know there there were jokes being said there was laughter a lot of times the the jokes were on the slave master and he didn't even know it that's right because we we have a way of communicating with each other in the black community that we know what each other's talking about, but they don't know what they don't know what we're talking about. A lot of times a slave master would be entertained by black people, not knowing that he was being mimicked by black people. That's right. You know, which um, a lot of these comedians talked about on stage. Right. Absolutely. And even, even put it in some of their sitcoms. Absolutely. That's right. You know, um, from the start of, of comedy for black people, it, it became to be humili humiliating black people. That's right. You know what I mean? When we talk about blackface, you know, early, early on, white people putting on blackface and mimicking black people and, and, and bad stereotypes. That's right. And then black comedians coming out doing the same thing because you could call it cooning or whatever you want to call it, but it was a way for black entertainers to get on stage. At that time, it was the thing that they needed to do. You could look at it today and say, oh, they were they were cooning, they were doing all these things, but people like Step and like Step and Fetch It, That's right. you know, doing his routines, um, being the laziest man in the world. Yes, it's it's cooning in a way, but in a way, it's also pioneering. He he opened the doors for other black entertainers to come in. To get right, on you stage. Know? Yeah, absolutely. Because right. you know? during his time, the only thing black people could do, um, to entertain whites was dance and play musical instruments. Mm -hmm. You couldn't dialogue. You couldn't talk to a white audience. So they couldn't talk. Yeah. All, all they could do was dance and play musical instruments. Yeah. Step and Fetch It had an opportunity where he got to dialogue where before that didn't happen. Yeah. And, you know, he, he made a substantial amount of money. He was the first millionaire, that. black yeah. millionaire from, um, from being a uh, comedian. Right. Yeah. And, then, and then, of course, you had the Amos and Andy show where, you know, it was looked at as they was looked at as being unintelligent. Um, and, of course, the NAACP pretty much shut that down. But it, again, that was another another step forward because that was two blacks with their own show, pretty much. You know That's what right. I'm saying? So even though it could be looked at as cooning. We also still have to look at it as pioneer because it broke Absolutely. down the wall. Sometimes you got to be the spook that sat by the door to open up the floodgates for everybody else coming behind you. Absolutely. They just happen to have to die on that hill, which is fine. 
but also you have to give them their flowers too because they they went through what they had to go through and we don't know how they slept that night. We don't know the mental capacity and what they had to go through to right. get up on stage and have to do that. But it's something that's necessary to to be able to have what we have now. Absolutely. You know? He he was a he was a pioneer, and you know later on in life he um, befriended uh, Muhammad Ali and uh, joined the Nation of Islam. So mm-hmm. obviously he understood um, his role, and he understood that a lot of people didn't agree with what he was doing, but he felt that it needed to be done. Right. Um, and, and obviously what makes these folks different from everyday folks that we see right. is that they had a goal and they had the no fear to do it. And we talk about fear a lot. It's not fear of just reception of white America. Right. It's also the fear. Of what are my black people going to say about what I'm doing? Right. You can't have, when you, we say no fear, it has to be no fear, no matter where it comes from. Right. And step and fetch it didn't care because he knew it wasn't about the money. Although he did set a precedence in saying, I want to be paid the same thing. My white counterparts are being paid, Mm -hmm. you know? So you had a guy who was doing something for the first time and asking for equal pay at the same time. Who would do that nowadays? When we get hired for a job, do we find out what our coworkers are making to find out if I'm making the same thing that they're making? Of course we don't. Why? Fear of losing that job. Yes, that good job. You don't mess up that good job. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, if if, me and we know that white people did blackface. So if he didn't do it, white comedians was going to do it anyway. Um, And then, of course, in the 30s and the 40s with segregation, you had the Chitlin circuit because a lot of comedy clubs were black comedy clubs was in the South. And you had people like Moms Mabley that came to the forefront, which was one of the first mainstream black female comedians. Um, she's also the first uh, com- female comedian to perform at the Apollo Theater. Um, she performed at Apollo Theater more than any other entertainer in history. You know, she was making ten thousand dollars a week at the Apollo at the Apollo Theater. That's right. And you know, she came up with the concept of being a younger woman dressing as an older woman, talking about how she was attracted to younger men, sexual uh, content. That's right. Race relations content. And, you know, without her, you don't get Monique. You don't mm-hmm. get the Simones. You don't get the Medea, Tyler Perry's Medea that That's you right. love so much with, with the wig on and talking about how she's attracted to younger men and those type of things. You don't get Martin doing Big Mama's house. You don't get those things without Mama's maybe Mama maybe setting that um setting that foundation. That's right. And 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 then right after that, Flip Wilson. Flip Wilson. Uh, Flip yeah. Wilson set the precedence for people like uh Jamie Foxx doing um uh was Wanda. Wanda. Yeah. And um um uh, Martin Lawrence doing Shanene. Yeah. You know, uh, Flip Wilson did Geraldine. You know, and Flip Wilson was doing my era as a, as a kid with his variety show in the 70s that we used to watch on TV. Mm-hmm. You know, Flip Wilson was the first black person other than Sidney Poitier that I ever saw on TV mm-hmm. was Flip Wilson. I yeah. think I think Flip Flip is important because it was the first black person to own, produce and star in his own network series. A- yeah. Absolutely. And if, if you look at... Um, if you look at what these podcasters are trying to do now with um like Charlemagne with the uh Black Effect, mm-hmm. um people like him, Joe Button, uh Million Dollars Worth of Game to have their own networks, uh though it's not comedy, but it set Flip Wilson set That's the right. precedence for what what was what was to come in, in this space. That's right. And I also I like the fact that all the made all the, the, the black major comedians piggybacked off of each other. Yeah. So Richard Pryor 
was on the Flip Wilson show. Mm -hmm. And he made a statement that said something to the effect that Flip Wilson was the only comedian that the audience hoped that Flip Wilson liked them, yeah. which was strange because most comedians hope the audience likes, likes, yeah. you know, likes the comedian. And it was the other way around. But Flip Wilson was so ingrained in the industry and saying, one, I want to control my creativity, yeah. right? I want to do what I want to do. I want to do it the way I want to do it. So I have to own something and do to, in order to do that. Yeah. White America, you, you, you own the broadcasting systems and the, the production companies. In order for me to do what I want to do, I have to own some of this shit. And mm -hmm. that's what he did. And uh, Richard Pryor actually was a guest on this show several times. Mm -hmm. And he kept going off script. And uh, they generally didn't like each other. And Flip Wilson told him, he said, nigga, if you want to do your own shit, get your own show. Yeah. Guess what he did? Richard Pryor <laughs> went and got his own show. Now, he, he didn't do but four episodes right. because the stuff that he did was um, just so far out there when he was talking about niggas that white America was like, wait, because, of course, they felt uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, and he only ended up doing four episodes. He signed a deal for 10. But you let Richard Pryor say it is they wanted me to do 10. I only, I only want to do four. <laughs> you know, he only wanted to do four. He wanted an opportunity to, as um, as uh, uh, some other comedian said later on in life, to say what the fuck he wanted to say. Yeah. And he didn't matter. If you only going to give me four episodes, those four episodes, I'm going to do what I want to do. Yeah. And that's what he did. Yeah. And, and Flip Wilson, of, part of being part owner of the show is, it's the Flip Wilson show. My name my, is, name's my on name there. is on That's there. Right. When when you sit the name on there, the first person coming out is a black man. That that represents something. And it also you talk about Richard Pryor being on the show. There were other entertainers that were on the show. So he came from the concept of putting other black people on. That's right. So when you look at and live in color with Keenan Ivory Wayans deal with putting his whole family on, putting Jamie Foxx, Tommy Davidson, um, all of those people, right. yeah, all of those people on that came from Flip Wilson putting all of these black people and say, hey, I got a television show, show them what the hell you can do. And that's what Flip Wilson did. And also, when you look at those type of shows, the way and Living Color did theirs, and the way Dave Chappelle did theirs, and the way Saturday Night Live did, did theirs, theirs came right. from right. the way Flip Wilson orchestrated his show. Yeah, Eddie Murphy was the first black uh, host on on uh, Saturday, Night, Saturday Live. Night Live to yeah. the point that, and again, I was old enough to remember this that when he when he hosted. He came on and he said, live from New York, it's the Eddie Murphy show. Yeah. Like he, and it, he said that, you know, he took advantage of that opportunity. But, you know, uh, um, Flip Wilson actually got a break because Red Fox, who was a regular on The Tonight Show, mm -hmm. they asked him on The Tonight Show, who do you think is the funniest comedian out there? He said Flip Wilson. Yeah. So Johnny Carson contacted Flip Wilson say, we will bring you on the show. Yeah. And he made Flip Wilson a regular on that show, along with some of the other, the Ed Sullivan show. Um, so in those, in those, in that time, in the '60s and the '70s, these were the talk shows that everybody was watching. And now you're getting to see black comedians on there for the very first time. Yeah, and you just said that the other one, which was Red Fox, you know, who is the grandfather of raw comedy. You know, he refused to do blackface. He was one of those comedians that first came out and said, look, I ain't doing that. That's right. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to be me. You know, I, I'm I'm not doing that. And, you know, during the 60s, he actually got his big break because Aretha Franklin was supposed to perform. That's right. And she didn't show up. So 
he went out there and did an hour and 40 minutes. Now, back for the people who don't know, back then, late 60s, early 70s, comedians went out there and did five minutes. That's right. You had a five-minute slot. <laughs> an hour and 40 minutes? There's comedians today who can't even entertain a, a crowd for an hour a and 40 minutes. I, I, I'll tell you guys, this is you guys hear me talk about my dad all the time on the podcast, the things that he introduced us to. And inadvertently and unknowingly, he introduced us to stand-up. He had albums. So for people that don't know, back in the 50s and 60s, what artists did is they made albums, yeah. just like you make music records, albums yeah. and records. They made comedian records. And um, my dad had these records that me and Alvin would sneak in the basement at night and we would listen to it. And at first we were listening to Red Fox. Red Fox had a ton of albums. And it was him doing stand-up live on stage. He did like 65 albums. Oh, yeah. God, yes. Yeah. And and the thing is, is what you saw on TV when he performed there, if you Google Red Fox, you're going to see him, YouTube videos going to pop up. Yeah. He was one of the first people, not comedians, people, that when he performed live, he did two things. He smoked cigarettes and he drank alcohol on stage, <laughs> yeah. right? That's mm. That was his thing. Mm. And when you listen to albums, he was smoking cigarettes and he would tell you what he was doing. Yeah, mm. this is not weed. This is a cigarette, right? Mm. And we listened to his comedy. And at the time, some of the things were funny, but it was so racial that for me, it did two things. One, I was intrigued by some of the things that he was saying. He, Dick Gregory, Richard Pryor, in, in terms of how black people were viewed by white America mm -hmm. and they made jokes about it, but you can tell it was heartfelt. They meant it meant something more than just comic relief. Yeah. And that led me to start thinking about civil rights mm -hmm. because of the things that I heard on these albums from people like him. And I cannot forget, and I'm not going to leave them out. Bill Cosby, the comedian, mm -hmm. Bill Cosby, the entertainer, not Bill Cosby, whatever you want to put behind that. But the things that they talked about on these albums were things that led me to start saying, I need to know more about black history and where we really stand in America. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you know, Red Fox, you know, he began to, he was one of the first comedians to go out there and talk about sex, race, politics, That's right. you know, in no way that comedians had did before he brought the truth of the black experience in America Right into again white America's backyard, you know, with with jokes such as back to Africa. Who I ain't never been to Africa. You send me home, send me to St. Louis, Missouri. That's right. Who? What do I do in Africa? Stand in the jungle with seventy seven hundred and fifty dollars suit and alligator <laughs> shoes. Yo, uh, he said, uh, I carry a knife now because I read it in the white magazine that all black people carry knives. So I rushed out and bought me one. <laughs> he he was raw, and and he he impromptu. I mean, he could he could come up with something funny just on the spot and how you know it was on the spot because he would laugh to himself on stage <laughs> to the point that he would say I'm going to tell y'all this once I figure out how to tell you but um, he, he was funny yeah. um, but so, like I said a lot of the things that he talked about was real and he also introduced us to something too when we talk about language barrier between black America and white America especially when we talk about black America, black America and law enforcement so on the Sanford and Son show, there was a white police officer and a black police officer. And when the white police officer would talk, they would look <laughs> to the black police officer and he would translate yeah. because we don't speak the same language, yeah. you know? So again, that's something that we know is true even today. 
that in order for white America to understand it, you have to look at it from the comic sense. Mm -hmm. And so when you watch that on San Francisco, is it funny? Yeah. Mm. Is it true? Yeah. Just as true as it is funny. There's a language barrier. And that language barrier we still see is a problem today as the growing, the number of of unarmed black people being killed by police continues to grow. Yeah. Again, behind every joke is is the truth. You know, Sanford and Son, again, the first black sitcom since Amos and Andy. So you go from Amos and Andy uh, being unintelligent black man to getting Sanford and Son. Uh, a family-owned business, you know, running and on TV. And Red Fox was that comedian to be able to to bridge that gap from the white comedy club, black comedy club, to basically uh, black television. That's right. And Richard Pryor was one of the, the main writers of, of that show, which is why Demond Williams, who played Lamont, which is why he looked a lot like that's Richard yeah. Pryor. Yeah. You know, a lot of people didn't realize that, but that's why they went out and got Lamont because he looked the part of Richard Pryor. I do got a question for you. Um, Cause I know like for me, like the Cosby show, I'm just going to say it for me. Like, it's not something that I really watched. Um, so how was it for you? The first time you've seen, Good Times, The Jeffersons, Sanford and Son. Because for me, The Cosby Show, and I, I, tell, I say this, when I first seen The Cosby Show, and I don't know what it was, but I always wanted to know what it was like in white households. Right. So me watching The Cosby Show, it was almost like you see a black family getting values that a white family would get. You know, Bill, Bill did something that was, to, to, to me, was, was, was ingen- it was a genius. He was a genius when he decided to show a different side of what blacks in America could be. Because we always talk about the 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 imagery, the representation of blacks at an early age. When you go into school, you want to see pictures of black people, uh, famous black people on the wall, right? So for Bill Cosby, he wanted to start giving some images of what there what existed out there currently and what you can achieve. So when Back in my day, we saw Sanford and Son. He owned the junkyard. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, in most people's minds, where's the pride in that, right? Mm-hmm. He owned his own business is how we looked at it. Yeah, right. White America looked at it, but it was a junkyard. Yeah. So you saw the Jeffersons and you saw George own cleaners. Mm-hmm. And he owned the cleaners, but he still lived in an apartment. Yeah. Right? So he didn't own anything other than the cleaners. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, and it was funny. He had a maid. So it was him is what you call a drug dealer that is buying, uh, selling drugs, buying new Jordans, getting hotel room on the weekend and back to the ground on Monday. What is he building for the future? So what was George building for the future? And then you look at good times and that's what most of us can relate to Mm -hmm. is living in the projects, living in poverty, trying to figure out on what days you're going to have meat, (laughs) right? Not what you're going to eat. But what you're going to eat and when are we going to actually have meat? Because mm-hmm. meat was a was a rarity, right? Because it was so expensive. So that's what we went through where my mom would turn $20 into $200 worth of groceries, right? right. Like, how the fuck yeah. she do that? Yeah. Right? We could, relate with, we could relate to that. Cosby show, we couldn't relate to. Mm-hmm. But we knew it existed. Yeah. And that was an opportunity for us to achieve that. Now, you know, some people say well, it was unrealistic. For, for a lot of us, yeah. I would have loved to see Theo get locked up for a DUI, yeah. you know, or have some weed in his pocket at school or something, right? Something that we could relate to. But what Bill was trying to do is say, 
there's another side of what blacks can be other than what you've experienced or people in your neighborhood experience. Mm-hmm. Open your mind to broader things. You can have better opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. But hold on. We're, we're going to take a quick okay. commercial break. We'll be right. And we are back. Quan, right, you go ahead. I was, um, two things. You don't become, and we talking about Bill Cosby, the entertainer and the comedian. Number one, I'll always say you are funny if you can be funny without cursing. Oh, absolutely. Because most people can't do that. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, and then two, you don't become America's dad <laughs> if you're not great. That's right. And he was America's dad. Again, Bill Cosby, the entertainer and the comedian, not Bill Cosby, the man. I mean, Bill gave us, even, even, even in his personal life, he gave us information facts about what you could really be as a black in America. Um, the education level. Um, of course, he's still one of the richest people in America, one of the richest people in the world, um, black or white. Um, and then when you attach black to it, it just makes it that more significant for us mm-hmm. as people in terms of looking at what you can achieve. Um, and I think he opened opened the eyes to to a lot of black Americans to say we can be different than what we see on TV. Mm-hmm. Um, there is better. We as a people are bigger and better than what America has portrayed us as. And a lot of times we in turn start portraying us the same way that white America has. Mm-hmm. And Bill Cosby wanted to be different, at least in that sense. He wanted he wanted more for his people. Because there was, he got more. And the one thing we we found out about Black Americans who Black Americans who make it, we want other Black Americans to make it too. Yes, we want to move out the hood. Right. We don't want to live where we where we lived before. But that don't mean we don't want the best for you too. Yeah. I'm gonna show you how to do it. I'm gonna get the fuck out of Dodge. I told you, my dad used to say, the best thing you can do for poor people is not be one of them. Yeah. Right. And I know some people hate that. But yes, because if, if if I'm amongst the poor and I can get out, guess what? You can too. I see, we talked about him the other day. I see said, you know, about gangs. If he could get out, anybody could get out, mm-hmm. right? And the, the way you do it is you get out, mm-hmm. right? So I think what Bill Cosby did was instrumental in showing us a different side of what black people could be in America. Absolutely. It, it was necessary because, okay, you have Red Fox. You had Dick Gregory talking about this. Okay, they're bringing the conditions that we're in right now into the forefront. But now somebody has to give what we can be. Somebody has to give that hope. Like, what is the solution? So Absolutely. The, what, what he gave was a solution of what we can be. And it was a more it was more for middle class because, yes, there's black poverty. We know this. We can look at this. But there also is a black middle class out there. Right. And somebody has to tell their story as well. Absolutely. You know? Um but just going back, you know, Dick Gregory came after Red Fox. You know, Dick Gregory harnessed comedy as a means to educate. That's right. You know, he used humor uh, to point to things like, uh, you know, race relations and those things. And he became the first black comedian to successfully do all white nightclubs. And it actually happened because um, Hugh Hefner That's right. uh, had, a, had a club and he was supposed to perform one night and when it ended up happening, it was a snowstorm 
and Dick Gregory wasn't at home. He was still trying to get to the comedy club, but they were trying to call him and say, hey, don't come because there are a bunch of Southern men and women in here that came from a Southern, they're here for a Southern conference. And he gets there. Nobody tells him he goes on stage and now he's in front of this white audience, probably Ku Klux Klan members. And what he does, he starts mixing Ku Klux Klan jokes. And they died laughing. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, I think one of the first things he said is that he was talking about Southerners. And he said, I was down South and I went to a restaurant. And he said, the waitress came up and said, we don't serve coloreds here. And he said, good, because I don't eat them. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, they, he ordered a chicken. And he said that they, uh, white, white person said, uh, whatever you do to that chicken, I'm going to do to you. He said, so I kissed it. He said, well, I told him, line up, line up, boy. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, he he impromptu, yeah, and he went with the flow, yeah, you know. And he was another person that you know got on stage, smoked a cigarette, controlled the crowd from one place. You know, he didn't have to be demonstrative. It was just, I'm gonna smoke my cigarette, I'm gonna tell a joke, you gonna laugh, I'm gonna move on to the next. That's right, you know. And yeah, and he really his big break came from uh, Jack Parr. Who had a, a television? He was a television. He had a television show, and he would bring on guests. And he called and wanted Dick Gregory on the show. And Dick Gregory told him, "You know, I want to come on your show. I know what it'd do for me as a comedian." But he was like, "I can't come because you don't let black people sit on your couch. So therefore, I have to decline." And he said, "Jack Parr thought about it and said, you can come and you can sit on the couch and we'll talk.'" And he went and did the show and sat on the couch. The first black person to sit on the couch and talk to Jack Parr and came the most. Um, paid entertainer out of everybody, That's black right. or white. That's right. The most paid entertainer. Um, and he began to do uh comedy clubs, um, going around the world doing shows. And then one day, Mega Everest called him and said, "Hey, can you come down and and help me do the um? It was the voting rights uh rally, voter registration rally in Jackson, Mississippi. And we know Jackson, Mississippi is still on the news today. That's right. Um, And he went down and he said he was scared to death that he almost missed this flight because he tried to talk himself out of going down there. Yes, as a comedian, I talk about it, but I don't want to go down there and and actually have to deal with it. And when he went down there, he marched. um, He was scared to death. And he said, this is where I need to be. He said, I can't talk about it. And seeing these guys get beat and thrown into jail when I'm not part of the movement. So he went down there and he stayed a part of the movement. He became brothers with, with Megger Evers. And at the rally, he told a joke and the joke was, uh, there was, um, a white guy driving a car and he was drunk and he hit two protesters on accident. He didn't mean to, but he hit two protesters. And one of the black protesters went 500 yards into a field (laughs) And he said the other protester landed in the front seat through the windshield into the front seat of the car. So, so the police officer come down there and he he's mad. He's about to get on the guy for drinking and driving. And he said he sees that he, he hit two black protesters. He said he went 500 yards, grabbed the black protester and charged him with fleeing the scene of a crime. <laughs> and then charged the black person who landed in, uh, in the front seat, charged them with breaking and entering. <laughs> But this is this is the this is jokes that he's telling at a at a, rally, at a rally at a civil right. rights rally. That's and right. it's funny, but it's honest because when you look at the civil rights movement, the antagonizers were the people who were supposed sure. to be helping That's during right. the movement. And the people who were doing the right thing were the people who were being arrested. So that's the type of comedy he had. And then of course Mega Evers was killed. 
Um, and then he got closer with Dr. King. And you, there's pictures. You can go to Google and look at pictures of him whispering or talking to, uh, to Dr. King. And Dr. King is dying laughing. This is somebody who brought humor. This is somebody who brought class. This is somebody who brought attention. That's because right. again, he's the biggest comedian in the world. He's the biggest entertainer in the world. And he's down there in the civil rights movement. He's down there doing the things. And also... He could have easily just wrote a check to those people. That's right. Hey, here's what you need to do. Write a check. But he says, no, I'm going to stay down here. And they said he called his wife and said, hey, are you willing to go back to being broke and not having any of this fame and living out of tent? And she said, yeah. He said, well, I'm staying down here in Mississippi yeah. and I'm going to continue to fight civil rights. He gave up. He, he still did comedy shows, but he gave up for the most part all of the success that he had. And that paved the way for people like Bill Cosby to come in and, and fill that void because Dick Gregory stepped out of it to, yeah. do, and, to and, do the right thing. He, he even did more than that. I mean, at one point, he even called his wife. His wife wanted to be a part of the civil rights movement. And he was like, oh, I don't know about that. Yeah. And she was like, you going to? <laughs> you going to be a part of the civil rights movement? <laughs> and this happened a little shortly after, uh, uh, well, before what happened in Tennessee, where he was supposed to perform, I think it was at Tennessee University, and they blocked him. And uh, they filed a lawsuit, and they ended up winning the lawsuit, but they had to change the venue um, to be more, um, I guess it had to be more open mm -hmm. in, in, in what it was called. And eventually he was able to perform there. But in 1964, he actually wrote a book called Nigger. Nigger. Yep. You know, so, and <laughs> it was uh, one of the most, the best selling books of all time. Mm -hmm. You know, so uh, he also was one of the first black people to run for president. Yep. A lot of people don't know that. He was a write in in 1967 where he ran for mayor. Ran for mayor. He ran for mayor against, uh, um, against Daly. Daly, Richard yeah, J. Daly. In 1967. Yep. <laughs> And then a year or two after that, he ran for president as a write-in. Right, and he became one of the first black people to get uh, to get formal in that dietitian stuff. I know that's right. The movie House Party, make me some of that Dick Gregory. Yeah, that's right. It's funny. That's right. But you know, he became a vegetarian early on and doing the things that we people like me and other black people start doing that that health is wealth um, thing. But you know, his material on stage was based off of headlines in the newspaper. So, again, he brought politics and he brought education. Yeah, I'm going to make you laugh, but I'm going to educate you as well. I'm going to bring the problems that are going on in this country right to your doorstep. You're going to laugh about it, but on your way home, you're going to think about it and say, you know what? He's right. Yeah, because people called a lot of his information, they used to say conspiracy theories. Yeah. But the thing is, is his information was based on information that was public record, mm -hmm. right? Um, actually, some of the information that he went on to talk about it on a lot of the uh, shows that he was being invited on led to them coming up with what they call, even today, it's called the United States House Select Committee on Assassination Investigation mm -hmm. uh, behind the, the, the murder of, of John Kennedy. Mm -hmm. um, also, the murder of Martin Luther King. So without the things that he did, because he didn't believe that these individuals committed these crimes by themselves. Mm -hmm. He felt like the government was involved. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing. You can call it conspiracy, conspiracy theories all you want to. The information is out there. Yeah. You, you determine for yourself if you really think that these people who Lee, Har Lee Harvey Oswald, you think that he acted alone? Do you really think he had the capacity to create and, and, and this plan and execute it on his own? Yeah. You really think he was able to do that? You know, so these are the kind of things that he would talk about. And he wasn't telling you what happened. He was doing what we do. Yeah. I'm going to give you the information. You determine what you think mm -hmm. happened.
You know. Yeah, he, he had jokes like, you know, football is the only time a black man can chase around a white person and not get in trouble for it. <laughs> <laughs> he, he told he told he was on a TV show and he told him, be nice to me. Uh thanks to Mr. JFK with the new housing bill. I might be your neighbor now. <laughs> <laughs> um but again, you know, it's just somebody like that I think of. And when I look at Dick Gravy, I look at a lot on uh, Dick Gregory, I think a lot of myself, you know, from what I did in in the community in Bedford that I had a lot of white supporters. And I gave that all up to start talking about the truth, you know, to start doing activism work, to to put myself out there for for black people and begin to start to tell the truth. And that's one thing that he did. You know, he got he was one of the wealthiest men in the world, you know, from his entertainment, exactly. like one of the wealthiest entertainers. And he gave that all up to fight for something that he believed in. He gave up that right to. He got death threats, you know, from people. Here's the people who were asking for autographs that are now sending them death threats. That's right. You know, that just shows you, you know, what what Dick Gregory was able to do, not only as a comedian, but as a man. But that that also opened up the door for one of the rawest comedians to ever live, which was Richard Pryor. You know, when Richard Pryor started, he started off a Bill Cosby type, you know, suit on, hair slicked back, you know, the facial expressions, really no cursing. You know, Richard Pratt start, started off like that. And, you know, he talked about how he was in a nightclub one time because he became successful by doing that. And he was looking and it was all these white people looking at him. And he was like, they said he mumbled in the microphone, fuck this shit and walked off because he realized that I'm not me up here. Yeah. I'm who y'all want me to be. You know, that's similar to what James Brown said. Yeah. You know, he got to a point where he was going to perform and he looked out in the audience and was like, there's all white people. Yeah. You know, these are not the people that I want to be entertaining, especially not right now. Yeah. You know, and Richard Pryor, he changed his act to go back to being original. One of my favorites, and you can Google it and pull it up. He's performing live in his smoke-filled club one of the comedy clubs and he's got an army jacket on and he's just telling these jokes. And, and, and this is, this is fitting. One of the jokes that he told, um, you know, Richard Pryor, he, he joked about everything. There was nothing off limit, including himself. And uh, this is the joke that even me and my brothers talked about when my dad passed. Um, he was talking about when his dad passed and said, yeah, there was these Doberman pictures that lived up the street from him. And every time he would go by the gate, they would chase his ass, right? And he said, this day after his dad died, he was walking up the street and the Doberman came up and started talking to him. He's like, yeah, Rich, heard about your dad, man. Sorry, sorry that he passed. We're going to give you a pass today, man. <laughs> but tomorrow we're going to be back on that ass, right? <laughs> so I kind of, you know, so when my dad passed, me and my brothers was kind of joking. It was like, yeah, we get a pass today, but tomorrow we got to be back on the grind, right? So, uh, that, those are the kind of things that Richard Pryor bought that is it's funny, but it's real. Yeah. Right. And you can apply it to your life. Um, and even joked about for, for the people that don't know, Richard Pryor probably created what we call today smoking crack. Right. Free basic. Um, and no, he didn't accidentally burn himself. Um, if you you watch Jojo Dancer and then you listen to his autobiography, um, it was intentional. You know, he's to the point where he was so high that he was like, I, I think I want to die. Mm-hmm. And he doused himself with lighter fluid before he started freebasing and set himself on fire. You know, and then he made a joke about it mm-hmm. when he got to the hospital. Mm-hmm. He was on stage, had a match, 
He said, look, I heard the fucking jokes y'all made about me. He lit a match. He said, what's this? Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor running down the street. (laughs) You know, so everything was, there was nothing off limits with, with, when it came to some of these comedians. They were raw, which we'll talk about a little bit later. That's what Eddie Murphy called one of his stand-ups, raw. Um, you know, so when you, you have the opportunity to one, the great thing about comedians is the same thing. We talk about, uh, uh, music, uh, musicians, they own their music, right? And when we mean own, that means it's yours, right? Yeah. You can do what you want with it. With, com- with comedians, they own their, 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 whatever you want to call it, their set, their information, their jokes, they own that. So because it was theirs, they did with it what they wanted. Yeah. And I think when it came to people like even Eddie Murphy, he did what he wanted to. Mm-hmm. So when he was on that stage and he did Raw, he did what he wanted to. You know, when Richard Pryor did Live on Sunset Strip, he did what he wanted to. Mm-hmm. And he said it the way he wanted to say it. He owned that shit. Nobody could tell him you couldn't say that, right? And for Eddie Murphy, he came at a time of HBO yeah. where you can do that kind of stuff and people watching on TV and you get paid for it. Yeah. So... For, for Eddie Murphy, he was part of that new venture and saying, yeah, Richard Proud did an album, but now I get to do the shit live on TV where I have a bigger purse. Mm-hmm. And he did. He got a bigger purse. Yeah. And what Richard Pryor did was, I, I don't know if he was the first one to do it, but he's the first one that I seen do it, which was, we know from the history, like we talked about earlier, like I talked about earlier was white, black, white people making fun of black people with the black face, the stereotypes. Richard Pryor is the first person I see do with the opposite. He made fun of white people in front of white people. Here's your stereotypes. This is what we think about you. This is how you act. And that's, that's something. And he wanted them to be uncomfortable while he did it. Absolutely. You came here to see me. I'm going to tell you about yourself. You're going to be uncomfortable while you're doing it. You know, he, he would say things like, uh, I know white people came back from intermission and found out niggas and took their sticks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, white people cussing is the funniest thing in the world. Come on, peckerhead. <laughs> you know, th- those are the type of things that he said, but you know, he was unapologetic about it in the way he said it. And I know most people, when you think of Richard Pryor, you think about the cuss words, you think about the word nigga, you think about him, the, the con, you think about the way he was raw. But you're still missing the content of what he was talking about. He talked about police brutality. That's you know, right. he's you know, police officer accidentally shoot a nigga six times. They accidentally shoot a nigga six times. It's funny, <laughs> but it's real. Like how like how does this happen? You know, interracial marriage. He talked about those things. You know how black people are treated on an everyday basis. You know, he called that stuff out right he, there, he right then and there. He talked about hustlers, pimps, prostitution. He talked about those things on stage, and people was like. I don't know if we should be hearing this. Yeah, he, he he talked about an instance where he got mad at his wife and he shot up his own shot car. Shot up the car. And you going to leave me? Not this yeah, right. he said, you going to leave me? Well, he, he started the story by saying that he came home and his wife said, I'm going to leave you. He said, okay, you go ahead and leave me. And she was trying to, you have to find another way out than this goddamn door, though, to leave me. You try the window or something, but you ain't going out this door. But he shot up the car and when the police came, they said, well, Mr. Pryor, we're going to have to arrest you for shooting up my own car. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're going to arrest me for shooting up oh, my own well, car. Oh, no police at my house, no more arrested <laughs> me. My ass. That's, right. that's what he said. For yeah. shooting my own, own car. car. <laughs> you know. uh, but yeah, you know, he brought 
the words had power. They did. Because again, this is during Black Power movement. This is civil rights movement to the Black Power movement, you know, with the Afro and being proud to be black. And Richard Pryor got up there and he showed that, you know, he showed that black pride, that black unity on stage by telling the truth. You know, you know, you hear also you can hear comedians, you know, even today you can hear Kevin Hart do a stand-up and then you'd be like, wait a minute, he said the same thing on another stand-up. Mm-hmm. Richard Pryor rarely did that. He when he got on stage, yeah, it was a new, new routine. Nobody knew what he was gonna do. He said he didn't even know what he was gonna do. He would get up there and it was always a new routine. Um he really caught a big break when they uh asked him to do uh Lady Sang the Blues. And that's right. They messed up and they let him do improv. Yep. And the movie went to being about Diana Ross playing Billy Holiday to who the fuck is Richard Pryor? That's right. <laughs> And he he stole the show, and you know again he had to, he had his own television show that only lasted a few episodes because he was doing skits like Black President, uh, Black Man Discovering the Truth About Egypt. He was doing those type of episodes, and he wanted creative control. He wanted more black staff members. He wanted more black comedians. People like Paul Mooney helping him write. That's right. You know you can't talk about Rich Pryor without talking about Paul Mooney. Let's throw that out there. The same uh, thing about Dave Chappelle. Yeah, we can't talk about Dave Chappelle without talking about Mooney. Yeah, absolutely. And you know he was trying to push the envelope, and they ended up shutting Richard Pryor down because he was ahead of his time. You know they want to they weren't ready for Richard Pryor to be in that aspect on television. Um, I like what Robert Townsend said about uh, Richard Pryor and people still in his uh, his act was said comedians would do get on stage and do you know motherfucker nigga bitch and then not have no content. Where's the joke? Yeah, not have no content. Richard Pryor did all of that and still had a joke in it. (laughs) And the thing with Richard is, is me being a '70s uh, kid. I, I remember the lingo and that's the thing that he brought to he brought the culture. Yeah. He brought the black culture to the stage and he brought it to white America. So when Bake sent me this this the idea of what he wanted this podcast to be, it was about how how did comedians bring black comedy right. to white America's doorstep. Well, Richard didn't only Richard Pryor didn't only bring black comedy to white America's doorstep. He bought the whole fucking culture right. to Rhinos, the doorstep. Uh, drinking on the corner. That's all right. That stuff. You don't see that. And you, you listen to the words that he said and he talked, like he said things like he knocked that nigga smooth. Yeah. So if people don't know what that means, it means he knocked somebody out. Yeah. And he would say, come on, shoot your best shot, baby. You know, that's like, oh, you want to take a shot at me? Give me your best thing. Give me whatever you got, you know? So he bought the lingo. He bought the whole fucking culture to the doorstep of white America, which made it appealing because even today, most white people don't understand our culture. Yeah. And he bought that culture fully loaded. Yeah. So if white America wasn't ready for it then, they ain't even ready for it now. Right. You know, so when I think of Richard Pryor, that's what I think about is what he brought to the doorsteps of white America so that when we say certain things, white people can understand, oh, that nigga's serious. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And it, it also... Yes, it's funny. Yes, he brought black America to white people's doorstep, but we have to also understand that was his rise and his fall because it was true. That's right. And it was his personal life. So when, yes, he's talking about him doing drugs. Yes, he's talking about his mom being a prostitute, his uncles and aunts being pimps and hoes and drinking and all of this problem. Yeah. So those were his demons that he's letting out on stage, but they're also still his demons. That's right. And that was also Richard Pryor's downfall is that he had to live with that. Um, but one of the things that impressed me was about his story was when he did live on Sunset Strip, um, he, he did it the first night he bombed. 
That's he, right. he went on stage and he, I guess he forgot his material. And even with him bombing, the crowd is still laughing because while he's bombing, he's still funny. That's he's right. like, damn, I don't even know what the fuck I'm supposed to be doing. <laughs> yeah. it, 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 it's funny. And then he comes back the very next night, told the audience come back, and he does this show, and it's probably one of the best stand-ups that he ever did. That's that right. just shows you his resilience. But, of course, Richard Pryor opened up the door for people like Eddie Murphy. So Richard Pryor was great at stand-up, club, comedy. He made his way into movies, but he never had the creative control in movies. That's right. A lot, a lot of his roles that he wrote, he couldn't play. They didn't let him Blazing play. Blazing Saddle. Yeah. Um, and then they, a lot they of They couldn't get insured. And then one of my favorite movies, History of the World Part One. Yeah. That part was supposed to be for him. But they because he was so controversial, they said, Oh, we can't let you play. We can't put you in. Yeah. Movie, you know. And then he started doing movies where other people was doing the writing and it just wasn't as funny. He was just Richard Pryor just going out there doing other people's yeah, things. Yeah. Which way is up? pretty funny <laughs> that was my shit my and shit. i think that's one of the ones where he had yeah. the creative control when you look yeah. at the movies where they, where he was funny in he had the creative control to do that but when you talk about the the, the grand movies because which way is up probably wasn't the movie that was yeah. blasted over the, the the blazing saddles was the one that was supposed to be that's right the 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 changing of but the it, even in which way is up you know he did another character in there yeah. is the character <laughs> that's what you saw yeah. you see a lot of the comedians did like in the 80s and the 90s uh, where they would try to do all well, Eddie Murphy he yeah. does all the I don't need nobody else I did the whole damn movie exactly yeah. and he was the first one to do that man he did all the other characters himself uh, we're gonna take a quick commercial break we'll be right back uh, and we're back and we're gonna jump right in but again of course Rich Pride didn't have the creative control that he wanted to in movies and that paved the way for Eddie Murphy you know Eddie Murphy came in he kind of rose to stardom fast you know he was an 18 year old doing stand up he gets his break on Saturday Night Live and before that, on Saturday Night Live, what's my man's name that played on the Jamie Foxx show, The Uncle? Um, um, I'm sorry, because I, I can Google it. I don't want to mess his name up. Cause he's, yeah. Uh, Garrett Morris. Yeah. Garrett Morris was on Saturday. He was the black person on Saturday Night That's Live right. before Eddie Murphy. And he really didn't get the opportunity. He was just the black face there, you know, doing the regular stereotype stuff and really got to really say anything. Um. Eddie Murphy came in and was he was able to play people like James Brown. He was able to do yeah. improvs. He was able to do a yeah. lot of those things. I was going to say that, you know, he got his start just like a lot of the black comedians outside of people like Richard Pryor and Red Fox. But even if you think about Jamie Foxx, um, they got their start because they were able to impersonate other yeah. people. So one of the things that Eddie Murphy was good at was impersonating people. And one of the people that he was good at was James Brown. James Brown. And when he did Saturday Night Live, the first skit that he ever did was Hot Tub. Hi, y'all want to see me get in the hot tub? Hot, water hot. And it was funny because people who saw James Brown was like, that's just funny. Yeah. Right? That's how he got to start mm -hmm. was he was able to impersonate other people. And of course, at the time, um, uh, people like Mr. T was big. And he would impersonate Mr. T. Uh, Don King. Don King. Yeah. yeah. And he was really good at that, you know. And he he could always do it. He could do a Michael Jackson. Yeah. So Michael Jackson was big and he would do those kind of things. And he did Bill Cosby. So Michael Jackson and Bill Cosby was two that he did that he was able to even elaborate on and, and even go a step further. Like, yeah, some people came back to me and said, hey, Mike didn't like that shit that you did. 
the fuck he gonna do? <laughs> yeah. Right? So he was able to go a step further and make this shit even more funny yeah. by adding things that we all thought. Like, yeah, what is Mike gonna yeah. do? You know? Yeah, so, so even uh, on Saturday Night Live, you know, we could say that Eddie Murphy was more for the white audience, but we still have to understand that even for the white audience, he brought black humor. Absolutely. You know, he, he still had black culture about him playing. I think it was Mr. Robinson on yes. Saturday Night Live. He still brought that to the table. And they actually did one episode where he was, uh, he got to do white face. He put on a white face and a uh, suit and he goes into the bank trying to get a, trying to get a bank loan and he don't have no credit, no ID and, the white guy comes in and says, we ain't worried about that. You go, you go, you go get your money. And That's it right. show white privilege. So here's a guy who's already still moving a needle from blackface to now he can talk about white privilege right. right there on, on television. But he still gave the black perspective to the white audience, you know. And then he got his big break in movies. You know, he went from Saturday Night Live to being a movie star. It's different from playing, playing in movies to being a movie star. And that's what Eddie Murphy became. And the the key one was 48 hours. The scene in 48 hours where My he favorite. goes into the bar redneck with Redneck. My favorite movie. And, I've never been in a country backwards place in my fucking life. <laughs> you know, tell him it's a new sheriff in town. His name is Reggie Hanks. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I hate rednecks, which means I'm enjoying this shit. <laughs> that's my favorite movie. That, that's that's yeah. what he did. And then these comedians go from doing nightclubs. And then he does Ron Delirious. He's doing stadiums. And the other thing is, too, he, for for a lot of white people, what they liked about Eddie Murphy was the impression. Yeah. That he did that humiliated black people, buckwheat. Yeah, they love when he did buckwheat. So you know what he did live on TV. He had buckwheat killed. (laughs) You guys probably never heard that part, right? Yeah, he had buckwheat killed. Uh, Rockefeller Plaza. He had buckwheat killed on national TV because he was tired of everybody requesting that he do buckwheat. Mm -hmm. Because it humiliated black people. And that's all they wanted to see him do was buckwheat. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if you go back to Richard Pryor, one of the one of my favorite characters that he used to do was a guy called Mudbone. And that was a guy from Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And he would, Mudbone would tell stories about what was going on in Mississippi. So a lot of these artists developed the same concepts that they carried over to their, to their, to their sets. All the way up to, we can talk all day long about comedians, but you got to go all the way up and you get to the Wayans. What the Wayans were able mm-hmm. to do um, with um, in Living Color. Because if it wasn't for all these comedians we talked about, they had a whole fucking family yeah. of comedians that would not have existed without what these these pioneers did with black comedy. So without any of that, you don't get the Jamie Foxes. Mm-hmm. You don't get Dave Chappelle. You don't get Martin Lawrence. You don't get any of these comedians if you don't have these people that we're calling pioneers. Absolutely. And, you know, like I said, you know, Eddie Murphy, you know, he took it to the stage. And again, he like Bill Cosby, he didn't talk a lot about race in his stand up. He, he talked a lot about black culture and black things. And he impersonated white people. He did those type of things. He he made what he was one of the first to make white people laugh at themselves. That's right. At, at how they how they impersonate. He made Richard Pryor made white people uncomfortable. Eddie Murphy did kind of the same thing and made them comfortable, and into a point where they were they were fine with it because you know they related more to Eddie Murphy than Richard Pryor. He wasn't as raw, but 
he still had that comfortability but with he, him. But he also did, you know, Spike Lee called him out and said he didn't right. didn't talk about certain things, but he hired he had black people all through his movies. Yeah. Think about coming to America. Yeah, black he he made sure Boomerang. black people had opportunities. Yes. Yeah. I mean, th- let's just name some of the people that he had. We can talk about Chris Ar- Rock. Arsenio Hall. Arsenio Hall. Yeah. Uh Dave Chappelle. Martin. Martin. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Halle Berry. Yeah. These are people that he put in his movies that before that, you didn't know. Yeah. You didn't hear about these folks, man. So I think Eddie Murphy, he gave back. He did what most successful black people in entertainment has always done is he gave back. He he put black people in his movies. Um and Charlie Murphy. We 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 can't we can't talk yeah. about Eddie without talking about Charlie. Yeah. Rest in peace, Charlie. Um, you know, the things that he was able to do. And for people that don't know, he was one of the the writers on the Chappelle, Chappelle show. show. Um and a lot of a lot of Eddie Murphy's jokes that he talk, he talked about on his stand up was really jokes that Charlie Murphy either wrote or they joked about that he kind of stole. Yeah. Um so that uh he could be successful because Charlie was like, I'm not one for being in front of the cameras. That's your job. Yeah. You know, so. and you, you just said another name and you know, when I was younger, I kind of looked at him as corny because again, during this era, after Eddie Murphy, you get an era where black comedians are they're They're rushing in right now. So mm-hmm. you get deaf comedy jam and that was the blackness, the deaf comedy jam. Well, before Def Comedy Jam, you had Chris Rock. That's right. And being that Chris Rock wasn't on Def Comedy Jam and he was already having this HBO special, a lot of people didn't look at Chris Rock as being the pro-black type of comedian. That's right. But he he said a lot of things, again, same as Eddie Murphy, that brought a lot of things to the to the to the table for black people. You know, he would again would read news articles like Dick Gregory, and he would talk about it, the problems with race relations in America right there on stage and white people loved him. That's right. You know, just because white people love you don't mean that Chris Rock wasn't being honest about what he was saying for black people. That's right. You know, and he's one of those comedians that I feel like don't get enough of their flowers because of what he did, because he kind of did it in a way where everybody was loving Eddie Murphy. And then deaf comedy jam was over here. And here's this black guy who's from the projects as well. Who's got an opportunity with white audiences right. that are not? Be- he's not beloved by black people, and he's not beloved by white people. But he still made uh, an era. Him and Whoopi Goldberg. That's right. Um, you know, people who talked about politics, and now there's politicians who talked about. They listen to Chris Rock so they can steal some of his information to tell the people to get the vote. That's right. Because that's how powerful his stuff was. And we, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about this 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 last guy for me. I, and some people, a lot of people know will know about him because of a recent movie that was done. But that movie did not do any justice to what he really brought to comedy, but also rap. Rudy Ray Moore, Dolomite. Mm-hmm. And you will probably never hear anybody talk about Rudy Ray Moore. You will never hear anybody talk about Dolomite. Mm-hmm. But what he did in terms of not just comedy, because I, I he was funny. But he was adult funny. He was yeah. mature funny. So as a kid listening to him, that was almost he was worse than Richard Pryor and and Red Fox put together. <laughs> I mean, he was raw. He was raunchy raw. And the things That's the way that down in the jungle deep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the things that he talked about. I mean, he talked about fucking. He, he talked about all <laughs> kinds of stuff, man. But what he did was one. There was a wino that used to do a character called Dolomite. Mm -hmm. And he used to tell these rhyming stories. (laughs) And 
he told the story one day and Dolomite was, uh, Rudy Ray Moore was like, listen, I'm a professional comedian. It's a fucking wino. Yeah. Let me, let me see what I can do. So he bought a, he bought a, a recorder, bought the dude some wine and said, do the Dolomite thing. And he recorded it and he became Dolomite and he became successful. But what he did was he created his own movies. He produced yeah. them. And they low budget. Yeah. They low budget. But he produced them and they sold. Black people wanted to see them. Mm -hmm. One of the first black movies that I ever saw was a movie called, I think it's The Human Tornado, which was Rudy Ray Moore. Corny. Oh, it yeah. was corny. But he controlled the entire thing. Yeah. So every dime that people spent at the movie theaters was his. Yeah. And when Eddie Murphy made the movie Dolomite, it was corny, but the concept that he he portrayed in the movie was right and exact. Mm -hmm. It was all about uh, Rudy Moore wanting to own every cent of what he made from what he did, and he did that. He he was successful. Um, even even to this day, he's one of the most successful comedians that ever entered the game. Yeah, and again, like I said, this is important because of for our generation what we got. It's all because of those. Like, you don't get Arsenio Hall without having Flip, right? You That's know, right. what Robert Townsend was able to do um, with creating movies, because he said, you know, he realized that the movies that he they wanted him to portray in, they wanted them to do these black stereotypes. Mm -hmm. So he created Hollywood Shuffle to show those black stereotypes, and it opened up the floodgates of people wanting to do movies. You know, Wayans Brothers, Kane and Ivory Wayne Wayans, uh, uh, does you know um i'm gonna get you sucker and then they come out with uh in living color That's which right. was i don't even know if tv was still ready for some of those skits that That's they right. were doing um and you know people like dl hughley you know, who goes on stage and does politics. And now you see that's what he does mainly now that's right. is politics. Steve Harvey, you know, what he does now, he's on every variety variety show thanks to people like Bill Cosby. You know, he's just beloved. But I want to do this episode because just like how we talked about how hip-hop music brought, you know, Black America to the forefront. We talk about how James Baldwin and Zora Hurston's writings brought Black America to the forefront what these comedians did on stage with a microphone, they set a precedent That's of right. what real is, what real black America is. And they brought it to the, to the doorsteps. It, it's another art form. Mm -hmm. It's another art form of laughter, enjoyment, but it's also education. Yeah. And, 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 and for the, the, the main thing too, for the comedians is it's a, it's a exercise of that, that right. You hear people talk about all the time. <clears throat> Freedom of speech. Yeah. And it allows them to have that freedom of speech and use that platform to educate everybody, not just white America, but educate everybody. Mm -hmm. But also, like I said before, bring the culture of black America to the doorsteps of white America. Yeah. Because if you look at you just look at TV and you look at the Bernie Mac show. Right. You look at the way he portrayed the black father, the black man to be the realism of that. You look at the Martin show, the way he portrayed the black friendships. That's right. You know, you look at the Jamie Foxx show. Um, when you look at the um, My Wife and Kids, That's you look right. at all of these shows and you just look how far we've come. When you look at from uh, Sanford and Son to Good Times to the Jeffersons, 
to the Cosby show to a different world. And now everybody, cause there's a lot of these new comedians who had sitcoms and it did not work because they didn't know how to bring those things. And a That's lot right. of times, you know, they'll talk about it in one or two episodes on black poverty or, um, black prejudice or all of these things. But when you go back and you look at some of these older shows and what some of these older black comedies was doing, they was doing this all the time yeah. and they didn't care who didn't like it. I, you know, I think about Bernie Mac and I think about when he had his sitcom, uh, the one thing that he used to say that I've noticed we say a lot on this podcast is when he refers to the establishment, he refers to the establishment as America. Yeah. You know, and, and, and when you, we talk about uh, in living color, the segment that they used to do, Homie the Clown. Homie, yeah. Homie the Clown talk about the man, yeah. right? The, the establishment. So even in their comedy, they still talked about the realization of how white America treats black Americans. Yeah. You know, and, and Homie the Clown, the, the, the man was the, the, the white America. When we talk about white American, we talk about the establishment. We talk about the man. We're talking about government. Mm-hmm. We're talking about laws. We're talking about the, the financial banking institutions. We're talking about education. We're talking about law enforcement. Yeah. We're talking about the city council. We're talking about judges. The, this is, this is the, these are, this is the man, mm-hmm. this is the establishment and how they view and ultimately treat a black, Amer- treat black America. Mm-hmm. And they were doing these standups, these comedian skits that, uh, was bringing that to the forefront, not just to white America, but to black America to say, Hey, you guys know what I'm talking about because you go through this. Yeah. You know? And if you go back and look at what, what characters did white America love the most? They loved Steve Urkel. Yep. They loved JJ from Good Times. That's right. Dino Mike because it portrayed that step and fetching type of feel. That's right. And a Buck lot of we oh yeah, a lot of black comedians was like, We're not doing that We're anymore. We're not doing that anymore. You know? You gotta close the thoughts. Um, I just wanted to to name a few uh shows that kind of shaped me as far as comedians. Uh the first one is Robin Harris, Bebe Kid. <laughs> Robin Harris. Uh, that was the first time you that I've seen a cartoon with with comedy like that that you could relate to. And you know that that show came from one of his standups with yeah. with, with Bebe. Like, uh, <laughs> uh, whose kids are these? Like Bebe's kids. What the hell, Bebe? <laughs> Bebe went downtown. What the hell, Bebe ain't take our kids with. Um, Kenan Wayans and Living Color, um, Living Single, um. Def Comedy Jam, Martin. I, I think the first stand-up I ever seen, and I probably shouldn't have been watching it at that age, but it was uh, Martin, You So Crazy. <laughs> uh, Jamie Foxx Show, The Steve Harvey Show, Wayne's Brothers, Kenny and Kale, Cousin Skeeter, Smart Guy, Sister, Sister, Comic View on BET, yeah. <laughs> coming at you six nights a week. Get your laugh on. Mm-hmm. Hey. And the Dave Chappelle Show. Absolutely. Yeah. But you know, Dave, just going back to Dave Chappelle, Dave Chappelle was one of those people who too was looking at it, his show like, are they laughing at me? Or are they laughing, laughing with right. me? Yeah. And he chose to give uh, that up and he's considered one of the best stand-up comedians for having that rawness that those old comedians had. I, th- I think the only thing that, that Dave Chappelle regretted about giving the money back was how it affected all the people that worked on yeah. the show. Yeah. Not so much how it affected him, but how did it affect the cameraman, the crew, 
How did it affect those folks that yeah, were behind Rollins. the scenes? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and he used to say that Paul Mooney used to talk to him all the time about that and said, yeah, you did what you thought was best for you. Yeah. But did you take in consideration how it was going to affect everybody else yeah. on the show? He said, so at the end of the day, you did to your 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 workers the same thing that white America has been doing to us for years. Yeah. You ain't no different than these motherfuckers. That's yeah. what Paul Mooney told him. You know, so obviously for him, a lot of his fighting coming back is trying to overcome what he did to to black people um, when he decided to give the money back. You know, that that happened to Nick Cannon, too. When yeah. Nick Cannon made some, well, he didn't make any wrong statements. It just was perceived that way. But a lot of people wanted him just to apologize because he's he's he got so many black people that, that are counting on him that, that he's given a paycheck to. So. Some, yeah, sometimes you got to be the spook that's out by the door. And like I said, step and fetch and had to do it. Um, and that paved the way for so many other comedians. Rather, whatever you think about their content, a lot of black comedians have their content for a reason because they're trying to set a stage for something. And you think uh, about controversy sales. I mean, you yeah. think about why would white America who controlled the networks want Richard Pryor on the set? Yeah. Right? <laughs> controversy <laughs> sales, right? Yeah. You know? Um, but we appreciate y'all. We love y'all. Peace.